If you have your Bibles, uh, would you please turn with me to the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 7. Last week, uh, Pastor Tim talked uh, on three chapters. It was one big, long story, uh, a neat story, if something that uh, has some sad elements as well. If you remember, uh, Israel uh, is at this time going against their, their great enemy, the Philistines. Uh, and the Philistines, they're going into battle with them, and uh, they're not doing well. And so they, uh, they decide, hey, let's take the Ark of the Covenant with us, the Ark of the Covenant of God. So they take it into battle with them. The, the, uh, the Philistines you know, steal themselves they, with a sense of fear that God's, a god is going into battle against them. And so they actually do battle against the Israelites and win. They capture the Ark of the Covenant, right, and they take it back to their own temple. For those of you who've seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know this is a bad idea. And so they put the Ark of the Covenant uh, in their temple with Dagon and, you know, their false god, and every time the, the next day they wake up and Dagon has fallen over, his arms have broken off, you know, he's bowing before the Lord, like it's a, it's a really kind of a, kind of a neat story, actually. So the Philistines, they start breaking out in tumors, there's disease, and they're like, okay, we have to get rid of this thing. And so um, they decide to put it uh, on like a cart, you know, attached to some oxen, and they just say, okay, we're just going to let it go, and if it goes back towards the Israelites, we know that this is from God. If it goes somewhere else, we know it's coincidence. Well, of course, immediately it goes back towards the people of God, back towards Israel, and they're like, all right, so they leave it alone, and so these uh, these people in Beth Shemesh, uh, these Israelites, they see this. They just see like this cart with the Ark of the Covenant just riding into town. They're like, what? And they, so they sacrifice the oxen and they're, you know, um, but even then some of their men are, are struck down because of the way they try to deal with the Ark because it's the holiness of God. So they take it and this is actually at this time the Ark is supposed to be in an area called Shiloh, but it, for this long period of time it's actually lodged in a different place called Kariath. Jerem, and it's there. And as we enter into our story today, uh, we're going to see that the Israelites are really wrestling with the fact of they have been suffering defeat at the hands of the Philistines for years, for decades at this point. That they are, they are a people who have sinned deeply, and they are, they are mourning. There's, there's a heart sickness that they're experiencing, and God is preparing them to repent. And it really kind of introduces us to this question, how do I come back? Some of you may be in a, you're in a relationship in your own life. Maybe it's your marriage. Maybe it's with your kids. Maybe it's with a brother or sister, an extended family member, your parents, where you have really messed up. You sinned big. You, you made a serious error in judgment, to say the least. Or maybe it's been for like a really long time. You've just been been sinning against your loved ones for a long time and you finally come to your senses, you're like, how do I come back from this? And sometimes it can seem daunting like it's impossible. You can't come back from this. It's too late. It's, what you've done is too painful. It's too hard. And this text today gives us help. Not only, I mean, not specifically just with our family members, but really with the Lord God. For decades, the people of Israel have been sinning against him right, you know, offending God with the worship of false gods. How can they come back? The text we're going to read tonight, today in 1 Samuel 7 is going to help address that. So I'm going to read the entire chapter if you'll join me. And the men of Kariath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son, Eleazar, to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kariath-Jerim, a long time passed, some twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you. And direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. 
So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged Israel, the people, uh, judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to them from Ekron to Gath. And Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, and he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah, and he judged Israel in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there, and there also he judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. This is the word of God. So as we look at this text today, we're actually going to spend most of our time starting in verse 3, and I'm just going to give you a heads up. We're going to spend most of our time in, uh, in verses 3 through 6. So it begins with lament with Israel. We're told that uh, the Philistines have been victorious over Israel for years, that God did not give them the victory that he had promised the, that they would have over their enemies. They are at the hands of the Philistines, their enemies. The ark has been stolen, as we said, it had been returned miraculously, but it's not where it ought to be, and the people were just kind of languishing. It says they lamented for some 20 years, lamented after the Lord. They're feeling, they're having the feeling of sorrow, but it, could you imagine feeling sorrow that's like unrequited for that long? They just don't feel the presence of God, don't feel the power of God, feel separated from Him and don't know what to do. And so they are lamenting. And this is, we're going to start seeing kind of like the condition, one of the conditions of true repentance. See, lament over sin, I believe, is, is a necessary step in repentance, but it is not repentance itself, right? Sometimes people are sad. We, we should feel, you know, a sense of shame or sadness or regret or remorse over our sin, but, but that alone is not really all that repentance is. Sometimes we can feel sad, you know, or feel remorse over our sin simply because we're not enjoying it as much as we used to. It's like, oh, I wish I could enjoy this like I used to. Or people can feel sad or sorrow simply because they got caught and they're not able and they must pay the consequences. But true repentance sees sin as it is. True repentance sees sin as evil and wrong, as foolish for its own sake. It's... It's, it's a kind of, of sorrow because of the sinfulness of sin. How could I have done this? Lament is a regret that you can't believe you acted in such a way, that it should not have been done. Feeling for sorrow for sin can and should lead to a return to the Lord, but it can't stop there. Like feeling bad isn't like where it ends, it can be a beginning. That can lead to a genuine return to the Lord. However, if that's all it is, if, it, if it's just like I feel kind of bad, and it stops there, you can very easily return to your sin. Where you're just kind of like, I'm just going to tamp that, that feeling down. That, that, I'm just going to ignore this, and if I just don't do anything about it, it'll dissipate. It'll go away, and then I can go back and do what I was doing. I know I've done that before. Have you? 
I wonder what Israel is doing at this time, how they're dealing with it. But God's goal oftentimes is, is to, and this is, is not to grieve you into just empty regret, but to lead you to repentance, which leads to salvation. So for Israel, it's at this time, Samuel is the judge over Israel, and he's the man of God, and it's now he's going to call the people to repent. And so we see him saying, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart. First of all, he sets a condition on them. If you're returning to the Lord with all your heart. Now he's speaking to Israel. He says, if you're returning. So he's indicating just by that that these people belong to God. They're not coming to him for the first time. They're coming back to God. Right? Repentance is a necessary step in coming to God in the first place. What, what is the, the proper response to the gospel? Jesus came and he died for our sins. He rose from the grave so that we can have newness of life. What is the proper response to that? To repent and believe. To turn away from sins and to turn towards God. That's how we come to God in the first place. But it's not just a one-time thing. Like Repentance is a continual thing. Martin Luther uh, the great reformer uh, began his famous 95 theses, nailing them to the door of, uh, of uh, Castle Church in Wittenberg, uh, essentially beginning the Reformation. He, he began with these words, Our Lord and Master Jesus Christ, in saying, Repent ye, meant the whole of life of the faithful is to be an act of repentance. And he's right. Even as believers, we are so often wandering from God we must always be returning to him in repentance and faith. As we just sang in that song, you know, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And so Samuel asks them if they're returning to the Lord with all of their heart. Because sometimes we can apologize or repent like halfway, like only enough to satisfy your conscience, Right? We can have a half repentance, but that's really kind of a false repentance. Like, like when somebody says, like, I'm sorry that you got angry. Like, really? Like, that's, that's not actually admitting wrongdoing. It's not seeking reconciliation. You do something wrong. It's, I'm sorry that you got offended by what I did. Not, I'm sorry that I did it. I'm sorry that you're angry or you're upset. It's like, it's just, it's just enough to try to, like, calm the waters, but not really enough that's going all the way. And so he asked them, like, is this really real? Are you just trying to quiet your conscience? Are you going to go right back to your sin just so you don't feel bad? Are you returning to the Lord with all your heart? Are you experiencing sorrow for sin? Are you ready to return to the Lord with your whole heart? I'm asking some of you, like some of you may be wrestling with sin in your life and you're, you kind of identify with the Israelites. You've been experiencing a kind of sorrow or a languishing in your own heart. It's been there for a while. Are you ready to return to the Lord with your whole heart? That's one of the first questions to ask. Come to the Lord. So what does repentance actually look like? He's kind of said the conditions, right? They were lamenting after the Lord. They missed him. Right? And they were ready to seek him with their whole heart. So what do they actually do? And Samuel commands the people on what it will look like, what they must do if they're serious about returning to the Lord. And this is helpful for us. There's three things I think that he talks about. And you can go ahead and actually put the slide up because I want us to be looking at this passage um, as, as we're going through it. The first thing he says is then, he says, if you're ready to return to the Lord with your whole heart, then Put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth among you. First things first, right? You must create separation, physical separation from the things that are causing them to sin. In this case, it was the gods, the idols of the surrounding nations that they had brought into their homes, they had brought into their worship, right? The, the Baals, the, the storm gods, the, the gods of fertility, all these different things, they've been absorbing them from the surrounding culture and putting them and worshiping them alongside of God. Those have to go. That's pretty clear. You have this idol set up in your house. You have this idol set up in the tabernacle. Get rid of it. Physical separation. And this is also true for us. 
You too must physically separate yourself from the things that are causing you to sin when you're going into repentance. Right? And, and it's this idea that you need to ruthlessly rid your life of the things that are causing you to sin. And it's going to be different for everyone. There may be things that are not causing others to sin, but they are causing you to sin. And if that's the case, ruthlessly rid your life of these things. Sometimes that means you're deleting apps. You're going to take the computer out of your bedroom. You're going to cut off certain relationships that are leading you into sin. You need to stop going to certain social events. You need to throw your Xbox away. You need to dump out the alcohol in your house. You need to cut up the credit cards. You need to hit the unsubscribe button. You need to stop reading certain authors or listening to certain podcasts that are stirring up anger and bitterness in you. It's different for everyone. But sin is the enemy. So there really is this push to show it no mercy. Mortify the flesh, Paul says in Romans. Put it to death. Evict it. Don't let it linger. Don't let it cozy up. Don't say, well, I'll keep it here, but I'll manage it. Yeah. That's not going to work. It's enslaving you. Jesus says it this way. Early in, in really kind of a shocking way, Matthew 5, he says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Now I think Jesus is using some prophetic exaggeration because if we always plucked out the body, parts of our body, we wouldn't have anything left after maybe a week. Right? Right? But he's saying, hey, this is how serious you should be about putting sin to death. Guys, and this physical separation from things, it, it reminds us that, it's, that sin is, it is a heart issue, but it's not just a heart issue. Guys, sin always works its way out of your heart into your actual life, into the external world, and true repentance will almost always require a putting away of the things that lead you to sin, cause you to sin, enable you to sin, encourage you, exacerbate your sin, make it worse. Get those things away. That, as Paul sometimes talks about it, the scriptures do about like, hey, put off sin like an old coat. Just take it off, throw it away, and put on Christ. Sometimes it, 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 sometimes it actually is that simple. Not necessarily easy, oftentimes it's painful. But put it away. Now, some sins are certainly more hidden and internal, right? Things like covetousness, Pride, malice, jealousy, envy, vanity. These are things that, are, that really do reside in the heart. And it's hard to know what you do with that. But you should be asking like yourself at the beginning, like, hey, what, what's contributing to this? Like, what is feeding this? What am I doing or observing or enjoying or taking part in or giving my time and attention or money to? What am I doing that is feeding this sin in my heart? that inflames these desires. And with the Spirit's help, if you don't know, ask God, God, show me. Show me what it is. I cannot see. With the Spirit's help, He'll identify it. And the degree that you are able, get rid of those things. One of the reasons why we need to do this is because if you have not noticed, God is invisible. I know. It may be new to you, but God, to us, we do not see Him Right? He, he is, he, God is spirit. We, we, he's made us as spiritual and physical beings. But, but he is invisible to us. You can't, you can't see, taste, touch, in most situations, hear God. He, our, our, we're, 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 we're praying to an invisible God. We're reading and hearing his voice and his word. You know, we see him at work in the world and in our lives. We see him answering prayers. But we don't relate to him in the way we relate to the people sitting right next to you. And because of that, there will always be a temptation because there's maybe a frustration that you can't just talk to God face to face or see him or touch him. To, to, you become dissatisfied with that arrangement and you want to seek a more physical, tangible, material replacement. Something you can hold on to, right? It can feel like a long distance relationship. And Israel sought the idols and figurines of, their God, of the gods of the nations because that presence maybe felt more real to them. Hey, this I can hold. 
It's made of wood. It's made of paper. It's made of plastic. But at least I can see it and, and, and touch it and look at it and know it's there. And I don't always know if God is there. These are physical stand-ins for God, and we have to be careful about that. Another thing to consider this is that Israel did not wholly replace God. They didn't say, all right, Lord, I'm done with you. I'm replacing you with the Baals and the Ashtaroth because I prefer these. No, 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 no. Their big sin is they added them to God. God, I'll still, you're still my God, but I'm going to supplement you with things in the culture, the gods of the nations, because I, 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 I like what they offer. They, 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 they itch, they scratch an itch that maybe this, that you don't, God. There's something about what they offer that's pleasing to me. Oh, Christian, that is very, very dangerous. And for many of you, that's the, danger, that's the greater danger for you. It's not that you're going to reject God wholesale or abandon Him wholesale, but maybe the danger is that you'll begin adding to Him. You'll be, begin adding the gods and the ideas and the trends and the beliefs and the worship and the religion of the nations around us. You'll let, allow something else into your heart and life that for a season seems more exciting than God. And you let it in and then you give yourself to that thing as Israel did. This happens to the church as well. Like not just an individual, but churches can do that as well. Syncretizing, trying to make the culture fit into Christianity. Progressive Christianity does that as, as its whole project and ends up being no Christianity at all and shipwrecks the faith of many. And so we must be on guard and start there. Hey, that's just, you know, putting out the fire. And so we go on to this next step. He says, and he says, uh, if you're returning to the Lord, put away the foreign gods and astral from among you and direct your heart to the Lord. And we're we're going to spend a chunk of time here because this is so key. The second is this redirection and, or consecration of our heart for God. And earlier we mentioned this is not only a heart issue. Sin is not only a heart issue. It's something that, that, that bursts out and works itself out into the real world. So often the first step is just, hey, the, the sin is in your chest. It is in your heart. It is on fire. And that is bursting out. We need to put out those flames first. All right? We need to, we need to put the flames out before it spreads, before it gets worse. And then we'll get to the root cause of it. And so... Uh, we need to remind ourselves, though, that even though sin bursts out into our lives, that needs to be dealt with. Repentance isn't just, okay, I've gotten rid of those external things, now I'm done. It's like, well, no, because sin lives in our hearts. Sin, that's where it's birthed, that's where it reigns, that's where it resides. Jesus reminds us in Matthew 15, 19, and 20, he says, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, Adultery, sexual morality, theft, false witness, slander, these are what defile a person. This is why just a moral life will not solve the problem. This is why just not being an ethical person or just being a good person or a religious person externally solves the sin issue. Because you can clean up your life daily and sin will keep popping up because it's inside of you. It'll keep growing and bursting out. And so to return to the Lord is the next call. Direct your heart to the Lord. Because that's what it means to return to the Lord after all. It's a turning of your heart away from your sins and turning, directing your heart towards God, your affections back to the Lord. Ultimately, all sin at its core is a breaking of the greatest commandment. Do you remember what the, the greatest commandment is? Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Loving God with all that you are. And to, to, when we choose to sin, when we choose to, to break God's law, to offend Him, it's because we are loving something else, someone else, more than God, even if in just that moment. We choose to love that thing more than God. So repentance is turning again in love towards God. Formerly, we loved our sin more than God, and now... Repentance means I have to hate my sin if I'm going to love God. Not just love it less, but hate it. And by God's grace, we can actually learn to hate our sin and love God with all that we are. Now, it's important to say, like, man, I, 
I don't know if I can make myself love God. I know. Only God's grace can inflame our hearts with love for him. That's one of the the problems with being a sinner is we ought to love God because with all that we are and and sin says, I I don't want to. I don't want to love you. I love me. I love me more than you, God. I can't just, and then, so how do we, how do we repent? How do we say, God, inflame my heart with love for you? I love, I love the way it's put. He says, just, just direct your heart towards God. Just train your eyes on the Lord. And he will train your heart to love him. Sometimes God leads us to repentance. Um, He leads us to love him by, first of all, um, graciously removing our love for our idols, for our sin. Sometimes in his grace, he removes the joy, the satisfaction, the comfort that our idols or our sin was giving us. He sours our affections for those things when they, fail to inter- when they fail us or they may even start introducing actual harm or consequences into our lives. It's God's grace when he removes the comfort, joy, security that sin was offering. Have you ever experienced that? Like before you actually came to a place of repentance, like you started feeling dissatisfaction with your sin? I read, read a story this week that caught my attention. Some of you may know, you may not know, but there's a woman named Kat Von D., She's a tattoo artist, right? She had a show on TLC called L.A. Inc., and an uh, interesting character, right? She's also a musical artist, very gothic in her style. Everything is very black and red and, you know, um, just has a different kind of style. She, I mean, she formerly dated Nikki Six, bassist for Motley Crue. She's a really close friend of Marilyn Manson. So just a different kind of, you know, person, right? So about a year ago, a little over a year ago, she was living in California, living in L.A., and she and her family, her husband and one or two children moved to, to Indiana, right? And it was around that time of July 2022, she posted uh, on Instagram that she was deciding to give up all of her witchcraft, all of her, all of her books that she was, her, her pagan books and things like that. And she posted on Instagram saying this, I have always found beauty in the macabre, but at this point I just have to ask myself, what is my relationship with this content? And the truth is, I just don't want to invite any of these things into our family's lives, even if it comes disguised in beautiful covers, collecting dust on my shelves. And then she just posted, like, you know, a picture of the, of the book, and they were, you know, very leather-bound, nice books of Wiccan and witchcraft and magic and things like that. This week, she posted another video on Instagram in which she's being baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And I think in a Baptist church, it was by immersion. And uh, you should have seen the people, like all of her friends in the audience, you know. And um, it was really beautiful. And I praise God for that. I praise God for this and pray that she would genuinely continue to walk in faith. And I draw this illustration to show that a year before she converted and came to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, God removed the security and satisfaction of her idols of her paganism, of her witchcraft. And it just came to, and, and, and then there was this year where she might have been lamenting like Israel was. It's amazing how God does that. He prepares our hearts. He, and we see that all along. It's not about you directing your heart to the Lord. All along, he's the one who's doing it, bringing sweet mercies into your life. So if you have a loved one, and I know some of you do, children, Parents, sisters, brothers, friends who are far from the Lord, like one way you can start praying for them is, God, would you remove the security that their sin is giving them? Would you graciously remove from them the joy of their sin so that they might turn to you, the true joy? Thomas Watson, probably my favorite Puritan to read, has this amazing quote. He says, loving sin is worse than committing it. Loving sin is worse than committing it. We can commit sin on accident or by nature, but it's an entirely different ball game when you love your sin. Oh, I love doing this. I love committing adultery. I love being angry. I love stealing. I get so much joy from cutting people down. When you love your sin, you're in a dangerous place, my friend. Instead, we must no longer savor sin, but re-savor the Lord in all of his goodness. 
And so he says, one part of repentance is you must direct your heart, say, God, I have been loving my sin, and God, I need to love you, and I don't even know if I know how. I'm just going to turn my attention to you so that I can say what the psalmist said, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me with a willing spirit. Lord, I want to be in a place where I can say, like the psalmist, you have put more joy in my heart than they have with their grain and their wine abounding. So we must return to our delight in the Lord. And by the way, surely God is delightful. I think it is one of the most cleverest, diabolical lies the devil has come up with that God is boring. And yet many of us do not read the Bible, do not pray, do not worship, do not seek Him because that's in our heart what we believe. Oh, that's boring. That is a lie. God is the source and sum of all joy. He himself is the very definition of it. Everything that you enjoy in this life, God created. Laughter, God created. Wine, sex, sunsets, mountains, oceans, stars in the sky. Every flavor that you enjoy of food, every color, every sensation that delights, all of this is from the very mind of God. And it cannot hold a candle to the pleasure of his company. In fact, I think hell is very much like if you have all of those things and have not God. That's why in Psalm 16, 11, it says, You have made known to me the path of life in your presence, God. In your presence is fullness of joy at your right hand or pleasures forevermore. Guys, if it's, if it's hard, if you're like, I don't know if I can repent. I'm enjoying this too much. Part of it is not just saying, well okay, this is going to be terrible, but I guess I'll go back to God. No, you're going to something so much better. You're leaving behind all of that junk so you can go to something that gives you true joy. Savor the Lord. It's going to be essential because if, that we do direct our hearts to him and delight in him because to delight in the Lord is what's going to make your repentance real and lasting. If you turn back to God out of a sense of duty but not delight, you will very quickly turn back around. And I want to encourage you that we can actually reclaim our savor for God. Some of you, like me, enjoy sugar. It's delightful. Sugar and salt are of the Lord. There's Bible verses about that. You are the salt of the earth. When I get a pretzel, like a soft pretzel, and there's like 11 pieces of salt on it, I send it back. I want more. If you have no appetite for fruits and vegetables and grains and things that are good for you, you know, and we all have young kids, and, and some of you, some, some of us, <laughs> have that problem. You're like, oh, I just don't like those things. They taste bad. Do they? I mean, some things do. I'm not going to argue for Brussels sprouts, right? They're, they're, you know, but if you're like, you know what, all these things that are good for me, that give me good health and will extend my life are bad, and I can just live, you know, on sugar and donuts and French fries, I'm getting hungry, um, and all these things, and oils and, and, and excessively fried foods, if that's your entire diet, well, first of all, we need to talk, it's not healthy. Um, but if you think like, well, I'm just stuck like this, I just have no taste for, for foods like that. You can actually change that. And it's similar to repentance, right? You first of all, start cutting some of that stuff out. And by the way, it's painful. Try not eating sugar for a day and you'll want to die, right? But, but you won't, probably, right? But start cutting it out and get hungry. Don't stop snacking and actually get hungry. And you'll find that then when you, when you start cutting some of that out and start supplementing with actual good stuff. Start savoring, and you're like, hey, you know what? This isn't as bad as I thought. And you can actually change your taste buds to a degree, your taste. You'll find that, that, that those other foods that are really healthy and actually, actually taste pretty good, God knew what he was doing when he made them, right? And some of them, you're like, oranges are like really sweet. I, I drink black coffee now, but I remember in college, me and my wife used to drink like mochas and stuff. And my, I, it's like, Michelle, do you remember you used to drink a white chocolate mocha? Some of you were like, yeah, that's my drink, white chocolate mocha. And she's like, if I drank that, I don't think I could. I would get sick because, like, her taste buds have changed, right? It's, no, it doesn't, it's too much. It's too sugary. In a similar way, when you cut out the junk, when you cut out the sin, 
and you begin to behold the beauty of the Lord in worship, in prayer, in obedience, your spiritual taste buds begin to change too. And you're like, man, what have I been missing? And you can actually say, God, in your presence, there's fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. God is not boring. God is not second place. And so the problem isn't that God is boring. If you have no taste for him, it's because you've been spending way too long feasting on idols. And it's time to direct your heart's attention back to him. So come to the Lord. If you need to repent, come to him and savor him and know you're getting something far better. Thirdly, he says, serve him only and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So first was to separate from the causes of sin, those physical things that are enabling you, encouraging you to sin. Just cut those out of your life, the things that are allowing you to savor sin and idols. The second is to direct your heart towards God. And the third is to dedicate yourself to serving him only. See, the Lord must have your heart and your life, your energy, your time, your money, all the things that you used to spend on idols and your sin, that now has to go towards God. See, because love for the Lord is, demonstra is demonstrated by obedience to Him. How do you show that you love God? Jesus made it very clear in John 14, 15. He says, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. If you love me, the way you can show you love me, Jesus says, is by doing the things that I ask you to do, obeying my commands. Christian, you are not saved by your obedience but you are saved for obedience. Because that, that's the ultimate goal of God's salvation in you, right? Sin is that you were disobeying God, and that's the problem. God created all the heavens and all the earth and everything in it, and he created you and I in his image to be his image bearers on the earth, to represent him and to rule over his earth, to be just like him and to obey him perfectly, right? So that his will will be done on earth as in heaven. Sin, the big problem is, is that we don't do that. That's the issue, that we are lawbreakers. We're saying, God, I don't want to be like you. I don't want to do what you tell me to do. Your big problem is not that you feel bad about your sin. Your big problem is that you do bad. We do evil, and God made us to do good to perform the works he's prepared for you to do his will on this earth. So the gospel doesn't stop at forgiveness. Hear that. The gospel is not just a message of forgiveness. Praise God it is. It doesn't stop there. It starts there so that God can work in your life and transform you and teach you to obey him like you were created to do. The work of Christ goes from forgiveness to fruitfulness. And Jesus uses this illustration of like a good tree and a bad tree. Like a diseased tree is going to produce some kind of fruit, if it does at all, but the fruit that it's going to produce is diseased and rotten and withered and not good. A tree that is healthy is going to produce, and it's going to produce good fruit, and it's going to produce a lot of fruit. Now, if, to use that illustration, Jesus, in forgiving you, if, if, if the gospel stopped at forgiveness, that would be akin to if Jesus went up to you as a, diseased tree and just said, I'm just going to pluck off all the bad fruit and just get rid of it. I'm going to forgive you of the bad fruit you've done, but I'm just going to leave you as a diseased tree. And every time bad fruit comes up, I'm just going to pluck it off, but you're, gonna just, you're just going to remain there, a hollow husk producing nothing. Guys, that's not where it stops. That's where it starts. God, it does forgive us. He does remove uh, our sins. He, he does so much more. He says, you're a new creation. I've given you a new heart, a new life. And now you get to obey God. Now you get to live life as it was intended. You get to serve the Lord with all that you are. And listen, I want you to hear Titus 2, 11 through 14. If you're writing notes down, write that down. It's not on the screen, I apologize. But hear it. One of my favorite gospel passages in all the Bible. Titus 2, 11 through 14. Hear what God's intention is in sending his son. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions 
and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Listen to this. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And Jesus came to purify you from ungodly works, but to purify you so that you will be zealous for doing good. I'm excited about doing good for the Lord. And so come to the Lord. Serve him only. That's the third part of repentance. Turning your heart to him, but also turning your life to him, saying, God, you have my heart, you have my life. Command Christ, my captain, command me. This is what Samuel called Israel to do, and he's what he calls you to do as well. Come to the Lord, commit yourself to him. His spirit will teach you to obey. You're not called to do it on your own strength. He will do it. We see the result of repentance is deliverance here. Serve him only and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. See, repentance is not about delivering yourself, saving yourself. I'm going to turn my own life around. No, it's, it's turning from sin, turning toward God, directing your heart towards him, and he is the one who actually delivers you. He is the one who does the saving. He's the one who does the rescuing, redeeming, reconciling. He does it all. You turn to him in faith. And in this way, he does that very thing with you. He does that with Israel. So I just want to, just want to say, we've said a lot of things today about that. We're going to leave this and kind of summarize the rest of the chapter here. But some of you need to come to a place where, where you're, you need to Repent where you have sins in your life, where you feel estranged from God, where you're feeling that languishing, that, that remorse, that lament for the Lord. And I just want you, you don't have to stay there. Like today, you can turn for the first time or for the 100th time or 1,000th time. You can return to the Lord. Guys, and he will receive you. He's not going to say, nope, it's too much. You've done too much. It's, you know, this last time was the final time. You know, I want you to sit in this for a while. That is not his heart. That is not what he will do. By his grace, if you feel any desire to come to him, it's because he's working in you. Put away the causes of sin. Direct your heart towards him. Commit to serve him. Israel does that very thing. And in verses 7 through 11, we see that the story continues. That Israel fasts. They repent. They pour out water before the Lord. They pray and they say that, that we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel is judging them at this time, leading them in this. And the story continues in the sense that the Philistines are observing this. They see that all of Israel gathers in one place. Israel's greatest opponent sees this, and the enemy is opportunistic here. Seeing that, oh, there we see Israel gathered in one place, but they're not gathered in strength. They're not gathered for war. They're not armed. So the Philistines decide to strike, to take advantage of this. I should point out that the enemy of our souls, the devil, is very opportunistic, right? We see in 1 Peter 5.8, to be sober-minded, to be watchful, for the adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. It is true that oftentimes when we are at our weakest, is when we're, at our, we're most susceptible to falling back into sin or being tempted. Alcoholics Anonymous has kind of an acronym called HALT, H-A-L-T, um, that we should, they should never, people who are wrestling with being an alcoholic should never allow themselves to get too hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. Because in all four of those instances, that's where they find themselves where they're more likely to go back to the bottle, more susceptible to return to drink. And there's some wisdom there, right? When we, we, we are often tempted when we are alone, when we're weak, when we're distracted, when we're exhausted, when we're hungry, lacking in spiritual discipline. Satan, it's no surprise, loves to tempt us, loves to attack us, loves to try to draw us back in those moments. It's no surprise that Satan tried to tempt Jesus when the Lord was supposed to be at his weakest, 40 days in the desert, fasting and praying, weak, tired, alone. And yet the Philistines made the wrong presumption, didn't they? They thought Israel was weak because they were gathered without arms. Instead, they were gathered on their knees in prayer. And ironically, it was when Israel was actually at their strongest for the first time in at least 20 years. See, repentance before God does not weaken you. It weakens your sin and makes you strong in grace. 
So there's the twist. They're actually at their strongest. And so they're calling out to Samuel because they see the Philistines. They see what's coming. They are not prepared at this moment. And so they, they, they cry out. They say, please do not cease to cry out to the Lord for us that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. And so Samuel offers a sacrifice, and he does just that. He cries out to the Lord on their behalf. And we, and there's a lot of tension. Like as he's, as he's offering, as a whole burnt offering, um, this, this offering, the Lord hears him, the Lord answers him, and just when the Philistines are about to strike, that's when God does something kind of cool. And in what seems to be one of the Lord's favorite ways of routing, overpowering enemy armies, he uses a loud noise to confuse them and to make them an easily defeated target. To me, this is kind of hilarious. Like, it, it's that a great and terrifying army, you know, that, that, is, that is outnumbering them, that has, that has armor and swords and long beards, and, and they're yelling and they're scary and all that kind of stuff, um, and that God just makes a big boom noise. And they're like, ah, and they get scared. And I understand it. Because I am a jumpy person by nature. Of course, Pastor Tim is as well. And he's not here, so I'm going to go ahead and share. We both are very jumpy people, all right? We've both scared each other at the office. At our old office, there was this long hallway. And I used to hear, like, when, when, when Tim was coming. And I, and there, I had this door right next across my office that had, like, a big Venetian blind or whatever it is. One time I stood right next to it, and, and I timed when he was coming by. And I pulled it up really quickly, and he just went... <gasps> And he was angry, right? But then he got me back because, like, I, he, like uh, earlier, like, later on, when I was coming in the door to the front, he opened the door, and he went, boom! And I think I, like, jumped on my stuff. We probably both had to repent after this. And now we have a truce that we do not scare each other, right? But it's kind of ironic, right, that big, scary armies are scared by loud noises, it's almost as though God is mocking them, right? Like God, the Lord God, does not even have to roll up his sleeves. He doesn't have to come down in a flaming chariot. He doesn't have to send angelic angels. He just goes, boo! And he routes the strongest armies that are afflicting his people. Man, God is so strong. We can trust him. He is powerful to defeat any enemy, and it's not hard for him because he is king of kings, and Lord of lords. We see Samuel interceding for his people, and it's really kind of a neat picture because Samuel is pitching for us, picturing for us what Christ is like, who is our great intercessor. So in, the same way, in a similar way, the people are saying, Samuel, pray for us, intercede before, the, before God for us so that we can be delivered from our enemies. Christian, you can do that too, always. You don't have to go into battle by yourself. You can say, Lord Jesus, pray for me, Lord Jesus. Help me. Hebrews 7.25 says that as our high priest, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. It's also similar to the Holy Spirit, who is also praying for you, right? Romans 8.26.27, the, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. We do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. As we ought to cry out to our Savior, we ought to cry out to our Deliverer, our Lord, Jesus Christ. He will defend His people, sometimes even from the consequences that our sins deserve. God, will you rescue me from this? In repentance, sometimes that doesn't change the consequences that have already been wrought, but a lot of times that repentance saves you from what would happen had you not repented. He's delivering you by your repentance from greater consequences that would come had you not changed your way. And so he will defend his people. He will vanquish our enemies. He will release us from bondage, rescue us from evil. Finally, as we wrap up the story, Samuel uh, makes a monument after this because it's awesome because Israel, after, after the Philistines are scared, they get up, they actually do take arms, they chase them down, and they defeat the Philistines for the first time in a generation. So Samuel makes a monument calling it Ebenezer, which means stone of help. He memorializes it for him and for the people of Israel that the Lord has been their help and that apart from intervening, they would have been destroyed. 
The scriptures wrap up this story by speaking to the after effects of his deliverance, right? That, you know, that the Philistines were no longer, for the rest of Samuel's life as he judged them, the rest of his life, that the Philistines were not really a problem. They never had victories over Israel for the rest of his lifetime. Israel was actually able to get back lands that they had lost previously, right? That there's that other area nations as well, the Amorites were not a problem. Because of their repentance and return to the Lord, God was their deliverer, but not just in that moment, but for their lifetime. And the same thing is true with us. That speaks to the, the um, extent of God's deliverance, that it continues on and on. That the Lord God delivers us in our battles, but also from the greater war. When his people call upon him for deliverance, guys, he answers. I am afraid of loud noises, but that wouldn't even get me. Guys, when, our, when, our, when you guys are afflicted by, because of our sins, we can call on God, we can repent and call upon him, and he will deliver us. And sometimes we don't know what to say. We don't know how to repent or how to ask for help. And the good thing is, is the Lord has actually taught us how to do this. And it's actually a prayer that you're very, very familiar with. I'm going to invite the worship team up as we get ready to go into another time of worship. But I, I would like us to uh, together stand and recite the Lord's Prayer together. And we're going to see so many of the things that we have talked about today shown in this prayer, that God desires that His will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that we call to God to supply us our needs, to forgive us, to lead us not into temptation, to deliver us from evil. So congregation, would you say the Lord's Prayer with me? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Lord, thank you for this time. Lord, draw our hearts to you. Not only do we not know how to pray as we ought, but God, we often don't even know how or when to repent. And God, it's by your grace that you grant it to us. Lord, stir in our hearts. Search me, try me, know my every way, and reveal it to me, and lead me to yourself. We ask this in the name of the Lord Jesus, our deliverer. Amen.